This teaching comes to you from the team at Anchor Church Sydney. We hope you're blessed by it. For more teachings, resources or info, check out our website www.anchorchurch.com.au Well thank you Hope. Good morning Anchor Church. Great to see you here today. My name is Matt, one of the pastors here at Anchor and it is a privilege to be bringing the Word of God to you this morning. A big shout out to everyone who's watching online. Uh, Why don't you give us a wave, say hello, put something in the comments and let us know that you're watching today. We're so glad that you are here and a big welcome to everyone who is in the room. So good to be gathered together in person and um, yeah, really pumped for this series as we step into a, a series, as Hope's mentioned, that will take us all the way through to Easter called Encounters with the King. Uh, and this is going to be a whole bunch of people from all sorts of walks of life who have an encounter with Jesus that radically changes their outlook, their perspective, uh, in fact, changes their whole lives and the trajectory of their eternities. And today we're going to be looking at the story of the paralytic. Um, and we're going to be looking at topics of faith and of mission and of authority this morning as we dive into this chapter together in Mark chapter 2. I also just want to do a quick shout out to my beautiful bride on Valentine's Day. Where I don't even know if she's in the room, but um, is she here? She's here. I love you. You're the best thing that happened to me after Jesus saved my life. And um, I didn't get you flowers because they're a rip-off today, but... Um, <laughs> We went out last Sunday night, and uh, we've used the full quota of babysitters. Uh, I'm going to pray for us, and we're going um, to jump into God's Word together, so let's pray. Father, we thank you that your Word is alive. We thank you that you speak to us, and we thank you that we encounter you again in the pages of Scripture. And so we pray, Holy Spirit, please speak this morning. We ask that you would transform our lives I pray that you would speak to every single person in this room, that they would encounter your grace, your mercy, your goodness, and your glory today. We come expectant. We ask God that you would help us to see the power, the authority that Jesus has to wash our sins clean. So we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would speak now. And we ask it in Jesus' strong name. And all of God's people said, Amen. A number of years ago, I was a youth pastor at a large multi-ethnic church in the western suburbs of Sydney, and I remember the day I got a phone call from our senior pastor to tell me that one of the kids from our youth group called Jake had been involved in a very, very serious motorcycle accident. He was riding his dirt bike out past Lithgow somewhere on a private property, and he uh, he was a very good dirt bike rider, and he rode over a tabletop jump at full pelt, and uh, somehow, no one saw what happened, but somehow fell off his bike. They think that he fell from a height of about nine meters. He landed, the motorbike landed on top of him and he broke his neck at C1, C2. A friend of his was riding past uh, a minute or so later, saw him, ran for help. Uh, The property owner and his dad and a number of others rushed to his aid. They performed CPR on him for 45 minutes until Westpac Rescue Helicopter arrived. They airlifted him out straight to Westmead Children's Hospital where they put him in an induced coma for a number of weeks um, and they put a giant brace around his neck, screwed screws into his head so that his neck would not move one millimeter and he lay there in an induced coma. And I still remember the time where we went to visit him and caught that first glimpse of a kid who was full of energy, full of energy cheeky, always kind of in trouble, uh, the life of the party, and there he was lying limp and lifeless in an induced coma. 
and I walked into a specialist hospital room and uh, I stood at the side of his bed with his mum and his dad and his sister and looked at a scene that was devastating and looked in the eyes of his parents and his sister and saw a deep desire for Jake to be restored. Our church started a 24-7 prayer chain and we prayed every single 15 minutes. We had a new person praying for Jake, no matter what time of the night it was, people setting their alarms, waking up in the middle of the night praying. We covered him in prayer for weeks as we prayed and prayed and prayed. And our whole church, along with Jake's family, all wanted the same thing. The doctors, um, the best doctors that we have in Australia said to Jake's parents that the best case scenario for him was that he would be a vegetable on life support the rest of his life. And if he ever came close to recovering, he would need to relearn every single thing that he had learned in the 16 years of his life prior to that point. He would need to relearn how to breathe. I remember being there one time where they took the ventilator out of him after they, he'd come out of his, his induced coma and he was learning to breathe again. And it was such a task for him that he only lasted 15 minutes before they put it back on. And we prayed and we prayed and we prayed and we all wanted the same thing. We wanted to see Jake walk. And yet his spinal cord had been severed at C1, C2, right at the top, right at the bottom of his head there. Now we encounter a man in this story, a man who's paralyzed. And he is paralyzed potentially from the waist down and his legs don't work. And much like Jake, he has family and friends who love him and care for him and want the best for him. They want to see him walk. They want to see him experience life. They want to take him fishing. They want to play touch footy with him. They want to do all of the things that a young man does with legs that work. And they care enough about him to get him to an encounter with Jesus. They want to bring him hope and healing and change and transformation, restoration to his body. And we encounter these four friends that care in verse three of Mark chapter two. So come back with me to those verses. They'll be on the screens. You can follow along there. So some men came bringing to him a paralyzed man carried by four of them. Now, Jesus has, um, prior to this story, he's been traveling, he's been teaching about the kingdom of God, and he healed a man with leprosy. Leprosy is a, a skin condition, and in the first century uh, Jewish culture, that meant that you were considered culturally unclean, you couldn't participate in society, you had to warn people about not being too close to you, almost like it's the, the cultural equivalent of having coronavirus these days, except it was like in permanent life quarantine and Jesus happens to heal one of these lepers and he says to them, don't tell anyone what has happened to you. And he completely disregards what Jesus has said. He tells everyone what's happened. And Jesus returns to Capernaum where this man has been healed and everyone has found out. Verse four, since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, so many people had lined up. It's like peak hour on Parramatta Road at five o'clock in the afternoon. It is jam-packed. Everyone has turned out. So since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it, and then they lowered the mat with the man that the man was lying on. 
these men, they come, they encounter an obstacle to their hopes. They encounter an obstacle to their dream of getting their friend to encounter Jesus and be healed. The crowd is there. The house is completely full. There are people out the door. There are people leaning in the windows. It's thick. You just cannot get close to Jesus at all. And yet they don't give up. They don't think, oh, man, I'm really sorry. We'll just come back tomorrow. There will be another day. I'm sure Jesus will come back to town another time. They don't give up. They don't go home. They don't stop trying. I, I, I love people like that who simply see an obstacle and think this is just an opportunity. And that is these four friends. And so what they decide to do is to take their friend up onto the roof. In the first century, roofs are uh, uh, architecture slightly different to what it is for us today. Uh, it's not a pitched roof with terracotta tiles on it. Uh, it's a flat roof, potentially made of straw and sticks and mud and uh, and they, they used it for storage. Sometimes livestock would be hauled up onto the roof. And so this is a flat roof with a staircase potentially that went up the side of the house. And so these men take their friends up onto the roof and they begin to pull apart the material that was there until they have a hole in the roof. Now, just picture yourself being in the room. You're sitting there listening intently to what Jesus says and all of a sudden dust and dirt starts falling from the roof and then... And then logs and branches are being pulled out and there's a gaping hole and four friends begin to peer through the roof. And then the the sunlight that has been beaming through is all of a sudden blocked as an object gets lowered through the roof onto the floor. And there he is. He lands on the floor. And and if the room is as full as what the account, account says, there would have been some jostling and some movement to allow the man to get there. And he lands on the floor right in front of Jesus. Now these four friends, I love their attitude because they don't care about the cost of what it would take to repair the damage to the roof. And it probably wasn't a significant cost, but it was a definite inconvenience to the homeowner. It's like, guys, that's my roof. Who's going to fix my roof? But they don't care about the cost. They don't care about being polite. You think about all of the other people who are waiting in line to see Jesus you know when you're, you're waiting in line and someone pushes in? You know when you're in traffic and that person comes up the side, the, the, the feeder lane, and they go all the way to the end, past the dotted lines, and just squishing up the front, and you're like, mm, jerk, and you're like, I'm going to get them, and I'm going to cut them off, and I'm going to, you know, as you drive past, and you know, it's like that feeling of like, you're so angry at someone because they cut the line, or you're waiting in a, in a queue that's um, socially distanced because of coronavirus, and some person who just cannot pick up the social cues that everyone's standing their distance just comes and stands in the front of the line and you think to yourself I'm going to tell this person exactly what I think about them right now and you tap them on the shoulder and you right or they don't care about the politeness of this situation they don't care about the person who's standing three or four rows back on their tippy toes trying desperately to listen to what Jesus says because they got there late Now, they don't care about the cost. They don't care about being polite. They don't care about what the religious people think. Here in a a culture that esteemed the religious aristocracy, esteemed the religious leaders, they don't care what they think as they put a man whom they would have deemed probably socially outcast, unclean, right in the middle of the religious leaders who took up the front rows as Jesus taught. They don't care about that. 
They don't care about the risk. Uh, have you thought about this? Like, people are heavy. A, a grown man is heavy, and I don't know what ropes or pulley system they had to get that man down in that roof, but there's a potential risk of turning him from a paraplegic to a quadriplegic because that mat just tips and he falls straight through the hole in the roof. They don't care about the risk. They don't care about anything, any of those things. What they care about is getting their friend to an encounter with Jesus. That's what they care about. They want to get their friend to the feet of Jesus and they are willing to do whatever it takes to do that. Now, yes, we'll hashtag whatever it takes. We talk about that all the time. But I, this is the attitude that I would love our church, that I want me to embody. An attitude that's willing to do whatever it takes to get people to have an encounter with Jesus. Like we don't care about whether it's polite. We don't care what people think of us. We, we are so sold out for Jesus and wanting people to encounter His grace, His mercy, His love and His goodness that we are willing to do whatever it takes to get people to encounter that. I love the attitude of these guys. I want to see it in my life. I want to see it in our church. I remember reading the story of a church uh, a number of years ago in the US who decided to embody this principle. And they went to Google and they purchased all of the AdWords associated with porn websites. So they paid good money to Google so that when someone searched the terms that would be associated with a porn website, they were sent to their fake porn website, which wasn't filled with porn. It was actually filled with videos and testimonies about Jesus. And, and so they intentionally tried to target this audience of people who are stuck in addictive behaviors and patterns and searching for something with the good news of Jesus. Now, right, they copped a lot of criticism for that. Oh, you can't do that. You can't associate yourself with a porn website. But they were willing to do whatever it takes to do to reach people that no one else was reaching, they were willing to do things that no one else is doing. To do whatever it takes to help people encounter Jesus. What would it look like for us to do that? Well, you notice here that Jesus encounters their faith. He sees their faith and he loves their faith. And it is their faith that causes them to take a radical step, a risky step. And I want to circle back to that idea of faith in a second. But it is worth getting people to Jesus. He is the one who can open the eyes of the blind. He is the one who can set the captives free. He is the one who can make the lame walk. It is absolutely worth getting our friends to Jesus. Well, there the man is. He's lying on the floor in front of Jesus. It's potentially a fairly awkward moment. He's looking up, the room is staring, and the room is in silent anticipation to hear what Jesus will say next. And he says this in verse 5. Have a look at what, ha what happens. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, Son, your sins are forgiven. Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, put yourself in the, in the shoes of the four friends who have just taken probably the biggest risk that they've ever done. They've lowered their friend at the feet of Jesus and they're peering in, listening to what Jesus would say and he says, your sins are forgiven. I think, what? Sins are forgiven? Jesus, are you overlooking the obvious thing that is wrong with this man? His legs don't work. What about his legs? 
sins forgiven, ripped off, all that hard work, all that effort. Now we've got to pay for the roof to get fixed and he just gets his sins forgiven. Jesus hasn't failed to recognize the blatantly obvious. There was something else that he noticed. There was something else that caught his attention. Did you notice what it says there in verse five? When he saw their faith. When he saw their faith. Now the faith here is probably the faith of the four friends and maybe even the paralyzed man who is willing to participate in this crazy plan. When he saw, that's what Jesus noticed in this moment. So he didn't notice the legs. He saw the legs. He noticed something more important, an attitude that he loves in people, faith. And so he does for the man what the man actually needs more than having his legs repaired and fixed. He, he forgives the man's sins. Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, we, while these guys might be confused, about what's happening here, the religious leaders are furious about what's taking place. They are so angry that Jesus would say this. Have a look at verse six. Now, some of the teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Now, if you pause to think about the question for a second, it's a fairly valid objection. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Isn't God the only one who is able to forgive our sins? So yes, seems like a fairly valid objection from these religious leaders. Sin, that is our rejection of God, lives that have turned our backs against God and said, God does not exist, I don't need you, I don't care about you, and lived a life contrary to God's good ways, that is an offense against God. Can you imagine for a second that I walked in here this morning and production team was setting up and Matt Uchippi, our production manager, was running around. He was hustling the team to get the cameras set up for live stream and, and, uh, and it wasn't working. And I walked in, I'd had a late night and an early morning and I was grumpy, I was tired. And as Matt and I were chatting, I just got really frustrated that things weren't working and I just decided to take my frustration and anger out on Matt and I punched him in the face. And then I stood back and I pulled his head down and I gave him five quick uppercuts and then an elbow that split his eye open. There was blood pouring out of his head. And, and then I kneed him to the ribs and busted a rib open and a punctured a lung and he was about to die. And as he fell to the floor, I started kicking him and laying into him. His eyeball was hanging out of his head and he's bleeding and he's dying. And then James Dawson walks in and because James is like, the most optimistic person on the face of the planet. He walks in and sees Matt on the floor there, sees what I'm doing. He rushes over and he pulls me aside and he says to me, brother, Matt, from my heart, I just want to forgive you for what you have done to Matt Uchippi. Now at that point, you're like, bro, seriously, Dawson, as optimistic as you are, you have no right to offer forgiveness for this incident for this instance, of which you have borne none of the pain, none of the hurt, none of the brunt. The only person who is able to forgive is the offended party. And so as Matt Uchippi lies there on the floor bleeding and looking up at me with his eyeball hanging out of his head, he is the only one. And so as the religious leaders are listening to Jesus say, son, your sins are forgiven, 
That is what is happening in their head. They're offended by this on God's behalf. How dare you? And yet Jesus here is responding to what he has seen. He has seen faith, bold, risky faith. Now, I just want to pause for a second in the story there and talk about faith for a moment. Because I think so often our definition of faith lacks some teeth. You know, for the most part, we will talk about faith in the context of believing, trusting that Jesus died for our sins to wash our sins clean and make us whole. And that has nothing to do with us. Our faith, the ability to believe, even that is a gift that God has given us, Ephesians 2 says. And yet when it comes to faith in our everyday journey of following Jesus, of being His disciples and apprentices, faith feels a bit anemic. We don't really know what to do with faith. And so we will talk about having faith, trusting that God's plans are there, praying for a job and having faith for this and that and that. But here you see that Jesus sees faith. There's a cool play in this story, in this, um, this narrative here between visible and invisible things, right? Forgiveness of sins. Sin is an invisible thing that none of us can see. Faith is an invisible thing that none of us can see. But here, Jesus sees faith. How does he see faith? He sees faith in the almost stupid and crazy risk that the four friends took to get their friend to Jesus. Faith is tangible. Faith is a step, it's an action that these four friends take. And faith is risky. It doesn't require much faith to do something that we can do in our own strength. It doesn't require much faith to do something that that God has profoundly gifted us for or that we really don't need Him to answer our prayers on because it's kind of probably going to happen anyway. That, That doesn't take much faith, right? But to do something that is beyond our ability, to do something that feels like a crazy risk requires faith. And I would love, I want this to be true of myself and of our church, that we would be a church that would have real, tangible faith with the evidence of taking a step, with taking a risk for Jesus. Anyway, that's another sermon for another day. Here are these teachers of the law in their heads, thinking to themselves, this guy's blasphemy. Who is Jesus that he thinks that he can offer forgiveness? Jesus responds with this in verse eight. Immediately, Jesus knew in his spirit what they were thinking in their hearts. And so he says to them, Why are you thinking these things? Which is easier? To say to the paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat, and walk. Now you would think at the point where Jesus read your mind, you would just be like, oh, okay, cool, you got me. It's over, yes, okay, I see, I understand. Jesus, he's like reading their minds, he's understanding their hearts, what's happening internally for them. Again, this visible, invisible play here happening and he says to them he he perceives their thinking he says to them why do you think this which is easier is it easier to say to this paralyzed man son your sins are forgiven or is it easier to say get up and walk now the level of forgiveness being invisible of course it's easier to say your sins are forgiven you can't see that it's not like you can pull your shirt open and go they're gone 
you just can't see that happening, right? As I look across this room this morning and for a Sunday morning, you're all looking amazing and beautiful church. But I can't tell from the platform here who's forgiven and who's not forgiven. There's no visible, tangible way that I can determine that. There's no QR code that you can scan that says, boop, forgiven, boop, unforgiven, right? It doesn't work like that. It's an invisible reality. And so, of course, it's much easier for Jesus to say to this man, son, your sins are forgiven because it requires no tangible evidence of the demonstration of his ability and authority to do that. Right now, I could just say, everyone in row three, your sins are forgiven. Over here, you, you, your sins are forgiven. My pleasure. Well, how good. You came to church and I just, there's no way of telling whether I just did that or not. But if I was to say to someone in a wheelchair in the front row, get up and walk, that requires some pretty immediate and tangible evidence to demonstrate whether or not I have the ability and authority to do that. Now, additionally to that, in the first century, um, religious culture had a very close connection between sin and sickness. And so for the most part in the first century, people believed that there was something wrong with you. You were sick, you were paralyzed, you were blind because there was some form of sin in your life. If you remember the encounter that uh, Jesus has with his own disciples in John chapter 9, they come across a man who was blind and they say to him, Rabbi, teacher, who sinned that this man is blind? Was it his sin or was it his parents' sin? And Jesus responds by saying, neither. But for the most part, most people would have assumed as this paralyzed man landed on the floor, the reason that he was paralyzed is because he was living in some form of sin. Now we don't know his story. We don't know whether that was the case. We don't know whether he was being stupid and had an accident and he's reaping the consequences of his stupidity or whether this was a, uh, he was born this way. We've got no idea. But Jesus knows that this is how they think. So he says to them, he plays their game. He says, look, I know that you guys think there's a cause and effect link here between sin and suffering, between sin and sickness. And I know that you can't necessarily see the internal reality of forgiveness. So, so let me just do something to help you understand that I have authority and power to forgive sins. And he does just that. He says to the man, get up, take your mat and go home. Have a look at what it says in verse 10. But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth, authority to forgive sins. So he said to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat and go home. He took, he got up, took his mat and walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone and they praised God saying, we have never seen anything like this. Of course we haven't. That doesn't happen every day. Jesus corners his opponents here. He, he gets them. He says, oh, oh, you think there's a link between sin and suffering? You, you think that those two things are God things? Well, here we go. And he heals the man. Boom. Walks out. Jesus does the, in, the, the visible thing, the visible demonstration to prove that he has power and authority to do the invisible. He heals the man as a clear demonstration of his power and authority to forgive sins. Now, you, you, you've often heard people say, well, Jesus never really claimed to be God. 
what's happening here? Of course, he, he, of course he's claiming to be God. He's claiming the authority that only God has. No one else has authority to forgive sins. All of the other priests and rabbis and teachers and Levites and high priests only ever mediated God's forgiveness as a secondary agent. Right? They would say, God forgives you. Jesus says, I forgive you. He claims authority that is only God's authority to forgive sins. Now I want to ask the question, who does that? Like, who has the power and authority to do something like that? Like, who can tell muscle fibers that have been atrophied for years? Who knows how long this guy's been like that? To instantly and immediately hypertrophy and have the strength to move. Like, we all know how long rehab takes. I, I damaged my knee six years ago playing soccer in a stupid moment of rage on the soccer field, put my leg out in front of someone, there goes my ligament. It, I was in bed for three weeks and it took me 12 months almost to get full range of motion and strength back into my knee. And it's probably still not right. We all know how long rehab takes and yet Jesus utters a word and this guy's legs work like as if there was never a problem. Who tells neurons to fire signals from the brain down the spinal cord and reach its destination where they hadn't been working that way for however long. Like, who does that? Who has the power and authority to heal a man who is paralyzed? If it is not God, if Jesus is not who he claims to be. And if this is what Jesus can do with the body, imagine what he can do with our souls. If this is what Jesus can do with it, Outside, imagine what he could do with the inside. So while at face value it might seem that it's actually a lot easier to say to the man, son, your sins are forgiven, get up and walk. And much harder to say, sorry, to say to the man, son, your sins are forgiven, much harder to say, get up and walk. Reality is Jesus knew what it would cost to offer that man the gift and the grace of forgiveness. If you keep flicking through the pages of Mark's gospel towards the end, you'll notice that the life of Jesus culminates in him being taken to the cross where he would die for the sins of the world. And so Jesus knew that in that moment as he offered forgiveness, he knew what it would cost. He knew it would actually cost him his very life. And so yes, it might be easier in that moment to say, your sins are forgiven. But ultimately, it would cost Jesus everything to offer that. Jesus wants to transform people's lives. Jesus is in the business of pushing back the curse and the darkness of this world, the curse of the fall, the brokenness that we experienced. And he cares about people's suffering. He cares about our suffering now, in the immediate, in the temporal. And he cares about our suffering in the eternal. And Jesus demonstrates in this story here a clear priority. He, he wants this man to experience moving, walking legs again. But more than that, he wants this man to experience the forgiveness of sins, the clean slate, a fresh start, 
He doesn't just want this man to have freedom to walk and play touch footy and do all of the other things that his friends and mates would love to have done. He wants this man to stand justified before God on the last day. Jesus wants to transform our lives. He wants to forgive us. He cares deeply about our suffering. And he is the only one, the only one who can offer this for us. A number of years ago, I was given a a birthday present from a friend of mine. I'm not sure what they meant as they gave me the present, but I I received it. It was a, a bar of soap, a novelty bar of soap titled, Wash Away Your Sins Bar of Soap. And as you read the back of the description, it said, effective for all of the seven deadly sins. And the directions were, um, moisten oneself, apply soap, lather vigorously, rinse, and repent. Said for vulgarities, insert in mouth, wash out, rinse, and repent. Now, if only it was that easy. But if only it was that easy to simply do something to the externals to be able to deal with the sin in our lives. But this isn't an external problem. And so our religious good works, our efforts, our attempts at self-justification simply will not work. So let me ask you this morning, church, how do we deal with our sin? If you're a believer, if you are someone who follows Jesus, where are you turning to for your forgiveness? Where are you turning to for your justification? Because we all have a bunch of functional saviors in our life. The things, that, the places we run to, the things, the people we run to when we feel like we need to deal with our guilt and our shame. Perhaps it's beating ourselves up over it. Perhaps we turn another person into a functional priest and we just confess our sins to them, but we have no intention of really changing our lives. Perhaps we just seek to numb that guilt and shame. What are the functional saviors in your life, the things that you run to instead of running to Jesus? If you're not a believer here this morning, if you wouldn't identify as a Christian, how do you deal with your guilt and the shame in your life? Because I tell you what our culture says to us. They say, they'll say, there's no such thing as sin. That's a religious label that has been put upon us. And religious people have all these strange morals that just make our life. If we just got rid of the religious morals, there wouldn't be a category of sin. We'd all be okay. The problem with that is it's like walking around with a blindfold on and your head in the sand. Because we know that this world is messed up. Corruption, murder, pain, grief, turmoil, all over the world, in our lives. How do we deal with that? And so just by pretending that the categories don't exist, that's not going to solve our problem. Perhaps your counselor, your psychologist might help a bit, but I want to suggest to you that we need a real internal solution, not just simply some external solution. We need a real internal solution to the problem of our guilt and shame, and Jesus is the only one who can offer that to us. He cares. I want you to imagine that um, this, this man who had, had his legs healed, if, if, if he was lowered in and Jesus just said to him, bro, go, um, you're interrupting my sermon. Here's your legs fixed. Get out of here. Let me just get on with my teaching. His legs are healed. He enjoys fishing and walking long strolls on the beach. He runs. I mean, he ran for three days after that. He's running, 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 running. And, and he, he's 85 And all of a sudden, his legs are now filled with arthritis. And he can't walk anyway. And he's back on the mat. And he's about to die, and he's about to face his maker. In that moment, what does he need more than anything else? Look, the legs have been great. 
And they were great for the last 40 years. But what does he need in this moment as he stares down the barrel of eternity? He needs his sins forgiven. Every single person in this room, your greatest need, as, as difficult as the things that we are all facing in our lives right now, be it job loss, be it family breakdown, be it pain, cancer, relationship hurt, whatever it is, as difficult and real as those things are, and Jesus cares about those things, our greatest need is that we would come home to God and be made right with our Creator. You know, I remember um, Jake, after he came out of his coma, and an incredible miracle of God in his life. Um, but while he was still in hospital, and whilst the doctors still said to him that his best case scenario was he would never walk again, he was chatting to his mum one day, and his mum, she had been to church. She'd been to church with the family. Uh, her husband was really involved in our church, but she would come. She, it wasn't really for her. She never really needed God until the moment her son was lying in a coma with the possibility of never being able to breathe unassisted again. And in that moment, she started to do what I think most of us would do, right? She started to pray. And over a series of weeks and months as she journeyed through this crisis that she was experiencing in her life, she ended up becoming a Christian, giving her life to Jesus, having faith. And Jake was sitting in his hospital bed one day and he said to his mum, he said, Mum, you know, if it took me breaking my neck to get you to become a Christian, then it's worth it. A 16-year-old kid. Like, who, who says that? How does a 16-year-old kid with his life ahead of him, potentially living in a motorized wheelchair, for the, who says that? unless there is a deep conviction of a real priority here, that it would be better for him to never walk again and his mom experience eternity than for him to walk for the rest of his life and for his mom to face a Christless eternity. That priority is only real for a 16 year old kid if he believes desperately in a resurrection that Jesus is coming back and he's going to fix those broken legs. Our deepest need is a fresh start with God. And I don't know who's watching online this morning or who is in the room, but if you need a fresh start with God this morning, we would love to offer that to you. In fact, we'd love to invite you to our Alpha course that starts just after Easter. We want to journey with you and help you encounter Jesus for yourself. This man here, this paralyzed man that has been healed is a picture of our spiritual condition. We're helpless. We desperately need God, every single one of us. And Jesus is the one who offers us what we all need, forgiveness, a clean slate, a fresh start, reconciliation with our Creator, and atonement as He died on the cross in our place for our sin to deal with that problem and to set us free. May we walk out of here this morning with that reminder. May, may we spiritually, right, spiritually be like the man who, imagine as he left the building that day, what do you think he did? I reckon he danced. I reckon he did burpees. I reckon he sprinted around the house 15 times. I reckon he skipped 
and I don't think he stopped. May we this morning have such a fresh reminder of what Jesus has done for us that spiritually we would walk out of this building skipping and jumping and doing burpees because Jesus has done for us what we so desperately needed and what only he could do. Just I wanna pray for us as we transition to a time of worship together in response to this good news message that Jesus has given us. So let's pray. Father, I thank you that you're a God of grace. I thank you that you are good. I thank you that you love us. I thank you that you care about the pain and suffering in our life. And you care more than just a temporary solution to that, more than just an external solution to that. You care about internal and eternal solutions to our pain and suffering. I thank you that you cared so much that you sent your only son to die in our place to set us free. God, I pray for every single person in this room this morning that they would encounter your grace, your mercy, and your love with a fresh perspective this morning. Send us out of here spiritually, skipping, dancing, running, as a deep sense of joy and overflow for what you have done for us in our lives. We love you, God. We thank you that you love us. And we wanna worship you this morning with everything that we have. And we pray this in Jesus' strong name and all of God's people said, amen, amen, amen. Bless you, church.